0: Hey everybody, it is Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 38 of Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, where we discuss the art of pitching every single week with David Cone, former Cy Young Award winner, five-time World Series champ. Do it with the Ace Researcher James Smythe and myself as well. And this episode, guys, something that we have been wanting to do really ever since the show began. That was have some pitching coaches on to give us some wisdom from the dugout and the major league clubhouse people who are actually in the arena so to speak right now in 2022 and I don't think there's a better time for Matt Blake the pitching coach of the New York Yankees to be joining the pod David what do you think
1: yes we'd be you know absolutely I mean I all you need to do is have one conversation with Matt Blake and walk away thinking wow this guy is buttoned down he knows what he's doing he expresses himself so well he, he is a perfect modern day pitching coach because he encompasses a lot of skills, not only the, the technology that he understands so well, but the psychology uh, that, that he uh, his background in terms of his degrees, what he got uh, in college and uh, so philosophy and psychology, pretty good, pretty good mix for a pitching coach. Think about it for a minute. He, he uses those skills. We talked to him about that and uh, yeah, he's, It's easy to pump up somebody when they're going well. The Yankees pitching staff is at the top or near the top in a lot of categories, including the starting rotation. He deserves a lot of credit, not just for what he's done on the big league level, but sort of helping the Yankees overhaul their entire organizational philosophy with regards to pitching and in terms of using the technology top to bottom, the continuity throughout the minor leagues so that then when they do get to the big leagues and that they know what that what's expected of them and they're well trained so yes uh, he's a he's a great young uh, pitching coach he's a great conversationalist he offers a lot uh so yeah imp- impressive very impressive young pitching coach
0: i want to try and make something clear here to our listeners because if, if you're not a yankee fan you're probably starting to listen to this podcast episode and saying, all right, this is a Yankee episode. There's no reason for, for me to tune in here, but Matt Blake and really the success of the Yankees pitching staff. It it's, I think it's leading some of the trends that we're seeing around major league baseball. So even though the Yankees may not be your team, you're going to get some insight here that has to do with some trends that we are seeing league wide. So it's not just with the New York Yankees. I think that's a good reason for you to listen in to what Matt Blake has to say, but we want to give you as much time as possible with Matt Blake. Uh, we're, we're also going to have this week in pitching history, three up, three down as usual, but first David, the opener for this week, what do you have?
1: Well, you know, I mean, to me, it's really easy. It's about to me picking out one pitcher that, that deserves some love and some attention and a spotlight and, it's got to be you know i mean there's so many choices but justin verlander what he's doing this year coming off of a tommy john surgery the injuries at 39 years old going to be 40 in september is just remarkable deserves the spotlight he is leading the major leagues in whip base runners walks and hits you know the basic whip stat uh, stat he's also among the league leaders he's right behind sandy alcantara and in innings pitched and i know i mentioned that last week about you know, if there's one stat, you know, there's not one stat that you can look at with pitching nowadays, uh, you have to really peel back the layers, but the simple, simple fact of being out there and giving your, your team innings is really important nowadays. There's not too many 200 inning pitchers anymore. Justin Verlander still one of those guys. He's second in the majors and in innings pitched first in whip, just a remarkable story that he has picked up right where he left off. And uh, he might be major league baseball's version of Tom Brady. How many more years can this guy go? He's still elite. His stuff is amazing. Uh, He's putting up quantity and quality quality together. Wow. Justin Verlander, hat tip to you. Remarkable. He is the best pitcher of his generation. The next stop, whenever that next stop is, is Cooperstown for for that guy. No doubt about it. You're watching a Hall of Famer in action on top of his game. That's kind of rare, you know, to be able to think about, wow, we got a Hall of Fame pitcher. You can go buy that ticket and watch him pitch. He's 39 years old, but he's still – at the top or near the top in so many categories, um, just just remarkable. Endurance, perseverance, everything you want to put there. Justin Verlander is the guy. Before
0: the season, when we were doing our over-unders before opening day, one of them was, hey, how many pitchers are going to surpass 200 innings? And, you know, the number wasn't high. I think the over-under was, two, was it three, three and a half? Yeah. Right around there, Yeah. And, and I, I actually said none. There weren't going to be any because of the lockout, the shortened spring training and stuff like that. One of the trends that we're seeing and one of the things we're going to talk about with Matt Blake is how things are sort of reversing themselves from recent years past, where starters are going a little bit deeper here in terms of innings pitched, not so much five and fly anymore. It's fascinating to see a guy like Justin Verlander kind of be at the forefront of this movement because... He's, he's right there in innings pitch and at 39. Yeah. He could be one of the very few 200, uh, 200 inning pitch uh, leaders, or, or one of the few members of that, of that club, if, if he's able to get to it, just a uh, remarkable James, what, uh, what fascinates uh, you about Justin Verlander here and what he's able to do in
2: 2022? Well, I, th- well, we've, we've touched on it, but it's, it's the two pronged part of it. It's not just that he's doing great and, And racking up these innings at such an advanced age, it's that he's it's his first year off of a catastrophic injury for a guy who is already in a well advanced in age in his career. So the thinking could have been: is the rehab and 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 comeback going to be more difficult for a guy like Verlander? And he's as good as he's ever been.
0: You know what else, fellas? I mean he's got he's got an option now for next year too, right? He he'd signed his deal with with Houston. I th- believe he can opt out and and secure a big multi-year deal, get that final bag I guess before he retires. So that's uh, something to watch for too with Justin Verlander and the Houston Astros as he continues to pitch so well. The Yankees it was noted throughout the offseason they made an offer to Justin Verlander when he was a free agent and going into this season A lot of Yankee fans, I think, were sweating a little bit, wondering about the depth of their starting rotation. Well, as it unfolds here through the first third of the season, right now, there are no worries about the Yankees' pitching depth because they are leading the charge in multiple categories around Major League Baseball. The starting pitching has been terrific. The bullpen has had a few bumps in terms of depth with some guys going down to injury, but it feels like they haven't skipped a beat either. And Leading this group is Matt Blake, our guest this week on Tone of the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, the Yankees pitching coach, who's good enough to sit down with us as the teams in Minnesota. So here is our conversation, our long-awaited chat with Yankees pitching coach Matt Blake. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show this week with us here. And we were we were just talking right before we hit the record button on how excited the uh, Yankees Twitter is. There's that faction of young Yankee fans on social media that really think of you as like a rock star, man. They, they type your name in, they put the go emoji <laughs> as, as they, as they type in your name, you don't see the two things separated here these days on, on Twitter and on Instagram. And I know you, you know, you dabble in Twitter. I see like you get a subtle like every now and then from you and stuff like that. Are you aware of how, revered you are in Yankees Twitter world. Uh,
3: my mom likes to make me known that I'm actually well liked right now where it can't always be the case.
0: I mean I think this has gone on for more than a full season so yeah. you are you're doing a, a much better job than probably a lot of pitching coaches or any coach uh, around the league but this time especially I mean James has the numbers for sure but just from the surface and look we're not asking for all the secrets here, but give us yeah, something. Yeah, we are. Yes, all right? we are. I, I want all right, that David, proprietary David wants to pull back the entire curtain here. I'm, yeah. I'm asking for a, a little a little something here. How has this pitching staff been so dominant in 2022?
3: Well, I mean, I, I think it's going kind of a culmination of things over the last couple of years where one thing is we've got some continuity with the group. We've got a lot of the same guys from last year to this year. I think we've kind of got our systems in place now where our – you know, we're really strong about giving feedback to guys on things they're doing well and things they can improve. And I mean, we've got
0: really talented players that
3: are putting their best foot forward this year, which is really exciting.
0: David, what do you want to know specifically? Because I know you've been chomping at the bit waiting for Matt to come join us on this pod.
1: Well, you know, I, I always like to start at the beginning. Um, you know, we, we've got a little bit of time here, Matt, to talk a little you know, about you, you know, your personal story, I think, before we get in, then I'll turn it over to James and he'll give us all the numbers. and and then we'll get into maybe more specifics. But I'm, I'm interested in your background. How you know how you started. Uh, your story's pretty interesting. And you know, going back to school. Uh, you know, your your amateur career. And then I noticed too, you, you got a psychology degree too, which, which I'm sure really comes in handy too, yeah. with, with pitchers, no doubt. Yeah. And speaking from experience, so give us a little just just from the beginning. You know how you got into it. Your amateur career, college career, your degrees and then you know that 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 entryway into professional baseball
3: yeah uh grew up in new hampshire ended up going to holy cross in massachusetts which is a small liberal arts school division one patriot league um i was a, a marginal left-handed pitcher with some feel but not much velocity and i think the writing was on the wall pretty quickly that i was not a major league prospect so kind of put myself to work right after college and really didn't get into it right away. Um, got a job to show my parents that I had some you know, revenue generating skills after they <laughs> helped me through school. Um, uh, but we just, uh, my dad coached me growing up and while I was back home in New Hampshire after school, we picked up like a local rec team to coach, just that, of, uh, you know, something to do in the spring and give back to the community. And we kind of had a lot of fun with it and it led to them wanting me to help with the all-star team <clears throat> that summer. And this is back in like 2009 or 2008. And then, uh, from there a couple of kids want some private lessons so I started giving some private lessons and just kind of felt like I didn't know exactly what I wanted to coach at the time I, I was kind of just feeling my way around at what I knew but knew that I, I wasn't necessarily offered a lot of the skill instruction that I felt like players should be offered and that's where I did a lot of personal research on uh, the biomechanics, diving in some of the ASMI research. Started looking around. Started you seeing what else was out there. Tom House work was out there. Ron Wolforth work was out there. Um, Mike Marshall and some of these guys, and kind of just started pulling it all together. Uh, and then ended up finding a DVD that had Eric Cressy on it, uh, Ron Wolforth's uh, pitching clinic, and ended up the mutual friend reached out to him and uh, this is around 2009 and we got a connection and then uh, at the time I'd moved down to Massachusetts and was running my a private instruction business on the weekends in New Hampshire and trying to run my other job during the week and kind of at some point got an inflection where I was like all right it's time to jump off and go full throttle in this and um, started coaching high school in Massachusetts and one thing led to another and it was helping the Yankees out with some scouting and just had to piece a lot of things together to to make a baseball existence work at that time where never really dreamed of it being in professional baseball or even college baseball. But at the time I was young and interested and kind of had a passion for it and just kind of kept chasing it.
1: Yeah, I, I think people don't realize, think, people think, oh, we we got you from the Cleveland Indians organization, right? But no, you actually had that connection with Cressy Sports and then the Yankees yep. as an associate scout. So yep. tell us about the Indians years. I mean, Cleveland has something going on there. they developed a lot of talent. You know, what were those years for you like with yeah, the Indians?
3: Yeah, that that was really transformative for me. I mean, I come in around 2015. I finished up coaching in the Cape, and I had been coaching high school baseball. I'm running my private instruction business with Air Cresty for like five, six years, and then the Indians were really progressive at the time in terms of the type of people they were trying to bring in, and not just you know people with baseball experience in the professional say uh, realm, but you know educators and people that were growth mindset oriented, people looking to learn and teach in different ways, and uh, they gave me an opportunity to come in as a, a lower level coordinator, which was a really uh, you know perfect spot to jump in and get exposed to a lot of different areas, uh, have a holistic perspective on the development and helping the coaches partner with you know, the different domains, whether it be the, you know, the strength side or partnering with the training or the rehab side. And then ultimately tying in the, the analytics and the front office to the player development, which is where my role kind of grew uh, in the front office was kind of overseeing the minor league department really making sure our, our system was tight in terms of the, the player plans that we had uh, the goals that the players had and then making sure they were looking at the whole picture and not just what's happening on the field, but what's happening in the weight room, in the training room. And are we getting the most out of these guys? And ultimately that got to a point where, um, you know, the Yankees were reaching out on me.
1: Good deal. One more quick background and then we'll get right to the present yeah. day. Um so you get the call who Cashman calls you, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. how how did that go? I mean, how, what did, what'd you feel right then? Yeah. So
3: we were, my friend Eric Binder and I were in the office and we walked to lunch and we heard that Larry had been let go. We were kind of kicking around like, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder who they'll go after. And, uh, we get back to the office from lunch and Chris grabs me, Chris Antonetti was the president of the Indians. Like, Hey, I got to bring you in my office real quick. I was like, Oh man. I was like, what would what, I do?
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. like, uh, he brings me, he's like, uh, the Yankees reached out Brian Cashman uh, called and wants to interview for a position. I was like, Hmm, really? What well, one, he's like, it's a, it's a major league role. And I'm just trying to think through like a bullpen, you know, like what would they be looking for? He's like, no, the major league pitching coach role. I was like, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> At the time it was like the Yankees were contending. They'd won a, you know, hundred plus games. You know, I had no on field experience at the, you know, really in the professional level, especially at the major league level. So, I was a little bit intrigued at like why are they reaching out? You know, do they is this just a fact-finding, you know, interview? They want to know what we're doing in Cleveland because we'd had some success recently. So I was a little guarded in that way, but I got on the phone with uh, Cash before I accepted the interview just to like, you know, what is your intention here? What's the skill set you're looking for? What's you know, what do you view this role as? Cause clearly I have a different skill set than a lot of the people you might be interviewing. Um, so I want to just make sure there was, you know, a potential fit on the, in the beginning. And ultimately you said a lot of the right things, you know, we're looking to build this thing out holistically. We want to help integrate the minor leagues and major leagues. We want to push the technology forward, all those things. And I was like, all right, well, I'm capable of doing that in some regard, you know, what, what it looks like on the major league field, the bright lights in New York city, we'll find out, but I think that the skill set you're looking for, I can help with.
0: Guys, a quick reminder that you can slide into stacks of cash this baseball season with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. New customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets, no matter what, win or lose. If you're looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the MLB season with DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. You create your own parlay. By combining multiple bets. For example, which team's gonna win, how many bases are gonna be stolen, total runs, anything you could think of. It is your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, it's secure, it's reliable, and best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code SLAB, bet just five bucks and get $150 in free bets no matter what happens on the field. That's promo code SLAB at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official betting partner of Major League Baseball. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. MLB trademarks used with permission. So along your travels, though, going from, you know, the, you know, working, working in the private sector and then in the Cleveland organization, this opportunity is obviously different because it's a non-field role. Did you ever envision that being a reality for you before you got that call from Cash?
3: Yeah, it was kind of becoming uh it was coming to a head a little bit in Cleveland where I had been asked on for a couple positions by other teams whether it was you know farm director Um, I think the college realm was looking at it for potential pitching coach roles in the ACC that I'd kicked around and just in part of my like personal development plan I'd met with Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff and Carter Hawkins and just talked about my interest in getting back on the field at some point I felt like I was maybe a little bit removed from the, the emotional component of the day-to-day, trying to win with the guys, trying to develop the players. Because in my role, I was kind of in the background, trying to make sure the coaches were coaching the players in the way that we kind of wanted as a system. And as a I was more of like uh, a mediator amongst that than the actual, the person coaching the player. And I kind of want to get back to that where I felt like my strength was in connecting with the players. And I like the emotional component of trying to win games every night. And so when this came up, it was kind of like, yeah, this this is something I'm really interested in. And the, the part that was hard was and I, I respect Chris a ton for this was trying to walk through like, is this the right position now in your career or is this something you want to think about three, four, five years down the road? Just thinking about the lifestyle changes from being in a front office role in the background and having a little more flexibility versus being on the 200-day train and what that entails and you know, just the, the different lifestyles you're involved in and the different job responsibilities. And I, I really appreciate the way we, we were able to look at it objectively and not just say, don't take it or go and take it. He didn't want to influence me. He wanted me to just make sure I had a, a really good perspective on what I was doing.
0: All right, let's fast forward here to 2022 your third season as a a pitching coach here and James the Yankees pitching staff I think the numbers obviously speak for itself but a lot of people probably see this podcast and they think oh okay this is kind of like a Yankee episode if they're not a fan of the Yankees no reason for me to tune in (laughs) but I think there's a lot of trends that I guess the Yankees are leading the way in that illustrate where we're at with pitching around the league this season so what are some of those numbers and what's some of the data that jumps out at you that kind of illustrates that picture for you, James?
2: Well, first, we'll just go over the Yankees staff and their great Mm -hmm. start to the season. So 2.91 runs allowed per game leads the major leagues, only 160 runs allowed in 55 games. That's the fewest at this point of a season in the entire history of the Yankees leading the majors in opponent batting average, opponent on base and opponent slug. All three-slash-line categories, their number one best strikeout-to-walk ratio in the majors, best homers per nine in the major leagues, even pitching in Yankee Stadium, leading in homers per nine for both starters and the rotation. Absolutely incredible start. But you want to go under the hood, Justin. I've been struck by how the Yankees have been throwing more cutters, and something you're seeing around the league, but particularly with the Yankees starters, Nestor Cortez has had such great success with the cutter. He's up from about 24 percent to around 40 percent this year with the cutter. Garrett Cole wasn't throwing a cutter. Now he's throwing about 14 percent of the time. Jamison Tyone, Luis Severino, have they've both had uh, increases around double digits in in their cutter usage. And Jordan Montgomery was the one starter who wasn't really part of the party this year. He hadn't been throwing a cutter until the last few starts. Now he's up around 15 percent. So Matt, is how is the increase in cutter usage how's that been a part of the staff's uh, mo
3: yeah i think it, they all kind of got to it in different ways obviously you know monty had used it in the past and kind of went away from it uh GMO was kind of using a harder slider up in the zone at times last year and kind of just transformed it into a little more of a cutter sebi's kind of continue to evolve you know his different breaking ball shapes as we got to more of a cutter Garrett added it on his own in the off season as just a way to kind of, you know, minimize some of the contact quality that he had issues with at times. <clears throat> and I think Nestor just, you know, realized it was a pitch that was having a lot of success and just kind of upped the usage of it, you know, on his own and a little bit by just seeing results that he was getting. But I, I think that in a lot of ways they were seeing what the other was doing with it and taking ideas from it and figuring out where it fits in their, you know, repertoire. And I think. You know, it's it's one of those things where the game continues to evolve and where the four-team fastball was kind of the, the main pitch that people were trying to get to with some ride the last couple of years. I think teams are training for it better. I think the, the ball is changing a little bit. I think, obviously, moving away from the sticky area where the spin rates, you're throwing bazooka balls at the top of the zone. I think guys are just finding different ways – to, to minimize the hard contact. And that's one way to kind of control the strike zone with a cutter, can get away from the barrel. And I think you're starting to see a little bit more of the old school pitching in, in some ways with that and the sinker.
1: Let me jump right in here, you know, on a technical question. You know, I had a long talk with, uh, when I first heard the term seam shifted wake, you know, I, I, I call, I reached out to Dr. Barton Smith at Utah mm-hmm. state and, and his staff out there. And had a long zoom with him trying to understand it where are we in, in, in terms of what you're doing, what the Yankees are doing, and understanding that concept as far as how to use the seams to create movement. Maybe it's the same velocity, the same spin rate, but you're getting extra movement with this theory called seam shifted wake. You know, how do you identify that? Are you using it? Where are we on on, on that level? Yeah,
3: I, I think we're Teams are definitely starting to come around do it. Obviously, you know, we've seen some applications for it. There's some other teams around the league that are obviously doing it on a systematic basis. I think it's it's one of those things you kind of had an idea it was there was something going on. You just didn't have a way to measure it before. And I think when we had the combination of Rapsodo measuring one way, Trackman measuring another way, using the Edgertronic to visually identify things, you were kind of putting the pieces together. And then when Hawkeye comes in, it kind of helps us Put it into the the competitive arena where you're seeing this observed versus inferred kind of differences and you're like okay what's going on here and then we can kind of dive into the, the visuals and see there's some compelling you know visual evidence that the ball is moving a certain way with a certain scene you know orientation and i think at that point it's like okay well how do we apply this across our whole player population and not just oh it just happens um so i think we spent some time to get with our analyst and understand you know, all the different components of the, really the, the movement that we're trying to create and where it's coming from. And then I think we looked across, you know, our players' arsenals and said, who would benefit the most from adjusting some of these things? And then, you know, went to work trying to, to help guys with it. It's still a tricky concept for players to understand. So, you know, we're trying to avoid like discussing the nitty gritty details and just trying to help them with the, the training applications.
1: Yeah, I guess it's tweak your grip this way, try to get the ball to spin this way. Is, is yep. it, Does it show up more in, in sinkers or sliders or, or across the whole uh, spectrum?
3: Yeah, I would say those are the two most prevalent pitches that you're seeing it kind of applied to. I think we're kind of seeing some other ways you might be able to apply it, which I, we haven't really got fully involved yet with a lot of the guys, but I think just being generally aware of your seam orientation is a good way to start in terms of like, are we optimizing your arsenal and the sinkers and sliders are kind of the, the, the trending ones right now.
1: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, just to finalize this point and then we can move on is <clears throat> from a selfish reason, <clears throat> excuse me, a reason I was interested because I threw kind of a two seam slider my whole career. Yep. And every now and then I would call, I would do, you know, I would get movement where I'd say I must have caught a seam because it would just take off. It was like a, you know, you use the bazooka balls at the top of the zone. It was for me, it was a boogie board slider. It was like, yeah. what, how did that one take off? You know, compared to all the rest of them. So I think it had something to do with the way the seams were oriented. You know, I, I had smaller hands. I threw a two seam fastball. My slider was right on those, that same two seam grip, maybe on the inside of the seams just a little bit, and then a splitter just outside the seam. So I didn't really have to do much with my hand as far as grips go, but I was always wondering, you know, and I've heard that some of the Yankee pitchers are using kind of a modified two seam slider grip. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you can, if you can expound on that a little bit.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that because it's, it's basically like uh, using a scuff without a scuff on the ball. Right. Uh, and that's, it's kind of how we refer to it. And it goes back to really like in Cleveland, we had Kluber who was throwing it and that was really when Andrew trying started to come in and you know, Trevor Bauer was pushing a lot of us to, to really start looking at this stuff and, you know, he was really studying what Kluber was doing and trying to figure out how to create a sweeping slider for himself. And, you know, we we were looking at the visuals, not really understanding why things were working, but we knew that if you created this rip and this orientation, you get this kind of horizontal movement. And then Bauer picks it up and then Clevenger picks it up and then they go elsewhere and they start kind of seeing, you know, Houston was doing it and, you know, now LA is doing it. I think our guys, you know, maybe have a little bit more science behind how it works and why it works now, and we can kind of apply it to more pitchers. But it's definitely something that's been in the league for, you know, probably four or five years. And now it's just really grown as the data and the information's kind of been maybe more prevalent.
0: Now, Matt, you touched on a point earlier about the increased cutter usage and how we're kind of returning to a – just more of a pitching – landscape I guess across the game and I think the guy that is at the top of a lot of people's minds when you just think about pure pitching treating it as a craft especially this season it's Nestor Cortez Jr. with the Yankees I he's sub to ERA he's he's missing barrels he's being creative with his pitches when you see the work that he's done here in the first third of 2022 does his success make you wonder why there aren't more pitchers like him at the moment
3: yeah. He's definitely an anomaly in some ways because he kind of came out of nowhere. He's a little bit unheralded. He's been you know, with us a couple of times now. Um, I think last year in particular, he started to kind of put it together where he had after the 2020 year done some homework on what pitches were working well, where how maybe what to emphasize and amplify with the four seam orientation and the cutter was becoming more of a thing for him. And as he got his, Delivery streamlined a little bit, and he got behind the ball a little bit more effectively. You know, the velo ticked up a little on the fastball. The ride ticked up a little bit, and it made the cutter a little more effective. And then you get into the the deception component, which is really hard to quantify. And, you know, I think he tunnels his pitches as well as anybody. And there's definitely a, you know, a little bit of an invisible fastball that he's got that really is the, the backbone of his whole arsenal, and then he kind of builds around that.
0: David, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, how pitching right now is just ahead of the overall state of hitting. Hitters kind of don't know what they want to be at the moment. And and I think Esther Cortez probably does the best job, at least we've seen on the Yankees for sure, of capitalizing on that uncertainty. So I, I think that's kind of where I was more geared to there, taking mm-hmm. advantage of you know the swing paths that we're seeing, the trending of, of overall hitting. are are you wondering if or are you know could could we see more of that approach from pitchers in the future in your eyes
3: yeah I think so I I think nowadays he's a really good embodiment of being authentic to yourself but not boxing yourself in and I think he's came to the league with a lot of the the like the shimmy and shake at the top the timing the drop downs and And underlying that, there was a lot of substance that I don't think he was appreciating that he's actually a very high level pitcher and he doesn't have to always use that stuff. It's a nice add on to what he does. And I think there's a lot more pitchers coming in the league willing to be themselves and try different things out. And to your point, take advantage of things that are going on in the league, whether it's swing pass, whether it's uh, uh, information asymmetry between pitchers and hitters right now. And I think you're going to start to see more guys that have wider arsenals. They can change angles. I think there's just there's way more information uh, in the training realm in in the comp- competition arena. I think that that just you can build yourself into a different version of yourself while not giving away what makes you really good.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's one of the, the the most impressive things I've heard, and I've heard you know Matt, you talk about this, and when you you and I have talked about pitching yeah. just just on a rudimentary level, but uh, it's sort of um, you know, back, back in the day, here we go. Here's my first back in the day expression. <laughs> um, you know, we had a pitching coach. He'd see watch you throw on the side. He'd sit there. Hey, uh, uh, keep your shoulder in. Hey, you're hitting your heel. It was basic, basic stuff. And now it's sort of, you still have the eye test. You still go down there. You know what you see with your eyes, but now you can verify and you mm-hmm. can hold these guys accountable and say, Hey, here's the best version of yourself. And according to here's what I see, here's what the data says it's almost irrefutable at that point when you present yeah. it to the pitchers that way, yeah. I mean, how, how effective has that been in terms of getting the buy-in from pitchers, especially maybe some of the old school pitchers who were yeah. a little, little
3: short on uh, trusting some of the stuff. I think that's been huge for me personally. And I know for our staff that we've, we've get to an objective truth that it's not my opinion versus their opinion. Like when I got to the Yankees, I don't have any major league experience to tell Garrett Cole how to pitch other than, I know what the best version of you looks like objectively. And then subjectively you and I have to agree upon what that feels like and looks like. And then I can hold you accountable to that. And then that's where, What does your throwing program look like? How do we train that? What do your bullpens look like? What are the best versions of your pitches that we want to try and really iron out and calibrate in your bullpens to get in the game, knowing that there's going to be an increased intensity in the game. So you can't always replicate what the game environment looks like in the bullpen, but we can get close. And then I just think it's making sure that When we know what the best version of you looks like, we don't let you slide off the tracks for very long and just assume that you're going to get it right. It's no very tight feedback loops on what's happening in the game. And then what do we need to do to retrain it every five days so that it keeps showing up?
1: That's fantastic, guys, right there. I mean, you can't really say it much better than that. Uh, I guess the last question on this sort of to button it up with your personal skill set. You know, I I went back to at the beginning, you know, I know you graduated from Holy Cross with degrees in psychology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. Great, great backgrounds for a pitching coach, by the way, (laughs) which one of those degrees do you use more as as a major league pitching coach? Yeah.
3: I I feel like the, the philosophy degree got me to the point of asking tough questions to get to the truth of things. And it got me to lead to like, why, why do we coach the delivery a certain way? What's, what's really underlying that? What are the foundational movements that as a, athlete or a human we would we'll want to do on a consistent basis and why does that make sense in the delivery so that was the philosophy side of me digging down and uh, my dad is an engineer so that's kind of where my mind goes and he always kind of jokingly was like what are you going to do with a psychology and philosophy degree like you know you have to go out and get a real job and I was like well, you know at the time I couldn't tell him I was going to be a major league pitching coach because that wasn't a realistic thing to say um but at this point, I would say the psychology degree is really important just on a day to day basis, dealing with the highs and lows of a major league environment. You know, guys that are struggling at times trying to make sure that they remember that they're really good at their craft and that they, they have they need the confidence to go out there and perform on a nightly basis, especially in the Bronx. It's a it's a beautiful place to play baseball and can be really tough at times as well. Uh, so I think the psychology degree just to keep everybody Neutral, as our, our uh, you know, mental skills coach would say, just keep everybody neutral and just continue to compete. Uh, that's where the psychology comes in. I'd say that's a heavily used skill set this day and age.
1: There you go, young aspiring pitchers and pitching coaches. There's your two degrees right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Double up. That's right. You no, know, I think despite what we've seen from all of the elite relievers over the last few seasons, I'm I, I feel like because I'm one of them, uh, you know, what, what we've seen recently in 2022 for the pitching traditionalists, they've enjoyed seeing starters go deeper into games. And it's happened recently by uh, a solid rate for Yankee starting pitchers in particular, a lot of guys going seven innings each time out, very different compared to, to the last couple of seasons around mm-hmm. the league. But for the Yankees, what has led to the open-mindedness about their starters facing a lineup a third time through the order, because that's been the, the the taboo, at least yeah. from from the outside looking in. It seems like that's the taboo from many major league coaching staffs and front offices. Where where's the open mindedness come from in 2022?
3: Yeah, so I think in the last couple of years, obviously it's been trickier with 2020. You know, there was the shortened spring and the shortened season and the expanded rosters. So. Just numbers wise, you have more pitchers to use and the stars are less built up. So that's the one that probably gets you off a little bit. 2022, we obviously, same thing, started with uh, expanded rosters, shorter buildup. So it was harder to get guys to that that pitch count or go through the third time. And and understandably, we were quick to move to the bullpen. Obviously, as the season's gone on, stars have been built up. I think that there's been a confluence of factors that have got us to this point where One, we've got five really talented starters with a wide arsenal that uh, have been efficient throwing strikes that give us a chance to get to the fifth, sixth inning with a pitch count in check that haven't used maybe their whole arsenal yet. And we think there's a a game plan involved that they can go through a third time. And and I think really the game leverage has been in our favor a lot of times uh, that has allowed us to do that. And some of the, the main leverage relievers that we've been relying on have been banged up with Greeny, Chappie, and Lowe um, going down. And so I think there's been maybe a rebalancing of our starters have been really efficient, the game leverage has been in our favor, and then some of the main guys have been out. So you maybe are willing to push those starters a little bit more. Um, so I, I think they've all kind of come together. But at the same time, there is a component of skill that they're probably deploying in the third time through that our game plans are evolving as the game goes on because their their ability to throw strikes with a wide array of pitches and the cutters that we've been talking about are in play to to minimize some of the contact quality early in game so you can get deeper and not just chase the strikeout the whole time which I think it may be the first couple of years we got in trouble with some of our guys that they were capable of going after strikeouts but it was hurting them in terms of getting deeper into games with whether it was walks or contact quality or pitch count. So I feel like as a whole, we've kind of just, all these things are kind of steamrolling together right
2: now. So the Yankees starters have been much better on the third time through the order than most other teams. Now the MLB average on the third time through is 263. For the Yankees, it's 225. And they're suffering a much much lower hit going through that third time, the third time through the order penalty and their bat, their opponent batting average is pretty much in line with the relief batting average, which is something you usually don't see no. usually from the third time through the order for the starter to the first time through for the reliever. That's a difference this year of about 30 points, but for the Yankees, it's only an increase of about eight. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the efficiency on the starting staff getting deeper into games. They're not, they're only top 10 in, pitches per start but they're getting deeper into games is that because like you said there's less of an emphasis on going all out for the strikeout so guys can have a fewer pitches per inning in order to get deeper yeah I feel like we've we've imparted on them we want to get after the strike zone early
3: and we want to get out in as efficient a manner as possible if it means we get to two strikes and we can put a guy away via the strikeout that's great but we don't always have to sell out for the strikeout from the jump and, you know, trying to get chase out of the zone early and then you're backing your way into counts. I feel like our guys have embraced this attack mindset and they've got the the arsenal to get into the zone early so that whether it's getting the two strikes and be able to put a guy away or you're getting into leveraged counts and you're getting weak contact early. I think some of those things are basically manifesting in, we're getting through counts, you know, with, you know, three, four pitches instead of five, six, seven. You know, we're getting into the fourth, fifth inning, in you know, a much better, uh, you know, 65 to 75, 80 pitches. And that way you're not fatigued going out there for the fifth or sixth when now we're, you know, two to one game and all these things are adding up. But to your point I, I do think that like pitches like the cutter are helping us manage some of that stuff. And I know Garrett in particular is a big benefactor of using the cutter to manage some of his pitch counts and get put guys in play instead of getting into these foul wall wars that would drive his pitch count up at times. And I think that's that's been a huge part of the group just identifying they want to get deeper into the game. So what is the collective skill set we can continue to embrace that allows us to do that?
1: Yeah, you know, man. I guess uh, you know what I've noticed, and and certainly talking talking to uh, you know some of the personnel is that it seems like the catchers are sa- are getting more of the plate early in the counts. Mm-hmm. To, to your points, like you know if we're gonna attack the strike zone from the first pitch on, then we're not having catchers moving east and west or trying to thread the needle on the corner pitches right. on on strike one. It's like hey, you know, get get a majority of the plate. Let's just uh, let you know whatever the pitch call or whatever the signal is the catcher's not moving a lot, you know, from the mm-hmm. first pitch on it. Is, is that, am I reading that right? Or is that an overall philosophy that just from a catching standpoint that, that you have?
3: Yeah, I think we're fortunate that we have some really talented pitchers with either premium velocity or premium movement, and they don't necessarily need to pick the corners with their stuff. And I think, it gives them more margin for error if we're looking at the big part of the plate early in counts and, you know, p- pitching to the middle, pitching to halves and not necessarily trying to get the swing and miss to the edges that, you know, leads to, you know, you're trying to get chase and it doesn't show up. So I think it's, it's being aggressive, establishing your attack mindset. The catchers are rewarding you by being over the plate and receiving the ball well to the edges. And then you almost have to earn your ability to get, get to the edges. And I think it's, it's, you know, not too dissimilar from how you talked about on the old like, you don't start from the outside and work in. You want to work from the middle and then work to the edges, you know, thirds to the edges and work to the black as you get, get the count in your favor. And I think our guys have really bought into that and they're, they're going after the strike zone early. And, and that's kind of what you're seeing.
1: That, that was what Gary Carter did back in the eighties with Dwight yeah. Gooden, you know, and yep. that those Mets, those great Mets, Fitchy staffs of the eighties, the 86 Mets. So I guess another question I had before we move on is in, re, in regards to tempo, you know, it used to be, you know, the old school pitching theory was work fast, throw strikes, change speeds. Now, the whole tempo thing seems to be kind of a, I don't know if that's a, a, a held in as high regard as before, especially some of the re- relievers that are maximum effort. And we're talking yep. about potentially a pitch clock coming in next year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to me, I always thought tempo was kind of an important thing. Uh, where, where does that fall into in terms of theory in pitching nowadays?
3: You know, I think some of our best guys are working relatively quick. Nestor is one of the quickest in the league. Yeah. Sevy's really quick. Um, Garrett's probably a little bit more methodical and controls his heartbeat really well. And I think if he gets moving a little quick, I think he's a guy that we remind to kind of just mo- like mind his tempo a little bit to keep his delivery in order. And then you get to the the far end of the spectrum where you have guys like Chappie and Lowe who you know are very methodical and take their time. And, you know, I think in some ways it helps chappy keep his mind together at the back end of a game but sometimes it can hinder his strike throwing ability by not getting in a rhythm and I think from a standpoint of keeping the game moving it's really important for the starters to kind of keep the defense moving keep them alive behind you get them off the field get them back to hit and I think just from a, a get your momentum going and the pitch has really helped us in terms of pushing the pace this year in terms of getting guys the sign before they have to get on the rubber where before the game kind of gets chopped up, especially if there's a guy on second, multiple signs, we've kind of cut a lot of that out. And we can kind of control the tempo and dictate it a little bit more, both fast and slow, depending on how we want to give the sign.
0: You know, Matt, one thing about getting more out of starters to have them go longer third time through I'm wondering what came first, did the pitchers collectively come to the staff saying, Hey, we kind of want to shed this five and fly reputation that's going on in the game today. Or did you go to them and say, Hey, here are ways where we can get more out of you in particular outings.
3: I feel like the, the starters were definitely pushing the envelope to stay in games longer. And I think one of the things that we, we try and do a good job of and, you know, constantly learning from them, I think is, Trying to explain to them what the, the factors are in our decision making of why they might stay in a game versus come out of a game and what that looks like from a, a game score leverage standpoint, you know, from, you know, where we are in our schedule, how many games in a row have we played, where the bullpen's at, who's available, all those things are going to factor in not just like I'm 60 pitches through five you know, that sometimes a game might be one nothing and we've got a full bullpen and an off day tomorrow. So, you know, we might use Holmes and Lowe and some of these guys earlier in games, you know, in those situations. So I do think that the situations have evolved where they've been in good spots to go deeper. The bullpen's been a little thinner. We've played 23 games in 22 days. And I think it's just we've been willing to live with some of the risk of the third time through. And as an organization, it's something that we're mindful of is, you know, the matchups we're getting later in the game and, you know, how do we manage both the bullpen and the starter workload as we're getting into a full season here?
0: Gentlemen, Father's Day is just around the corner and our friends at Manscaped are here to ensure all the father figures out there are looking like daddy material this June. Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, which includes their signature lawnmower 4.0, is the perfect bundle to tackle any and all old man hair from head to toe. This right here no dad joke. You treat him and yourself and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SLAB at manscaped.com. Trust me, his dad bod will thank you. Manscape's design with fathers in mind and the performance package 4.0 is here just in time for your dad's special day. Inside this package, he will find their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold all the goodies. First off, let me start by saying that the Lawn 4.0 will be the official MVP of Father's Day. Does your dad use the same trimmer for his body and face? Let's throw that out the window and give him the upgrade he deserves. But... Wait, there is more. Manscaped just launched their brand new Boxers 2.0 that are possibly the best boxers ever. We all know that dads love their comfort. They're resistant to change. But with summer just around the corner, the Boxers 2.0 are here to save every father from the uncomfortable heat. Whether he's mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, golfing in the sun, these moisture wicking boxers breathe without breaking a sweat. So dads, buy this for yourself. Sons, buy this for you and your dad. Ladies, buy this for your man. And dog daddies, you deserve this treat too. Again, 20% off and free shipping with the code SLAB at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code SLAB. Shake what your mama gave you? No, shake what your daddy gave you. David, I know you know you had, had managers and pitching coaches that had no problem letting it you know, all go in your particular starts, but was there ever a time where you kind of had to advocate for yourself to go longer and you had to make your case? Does any particular moment stand out to you?
1: I think there's always that moment, even with today's pitchers, you know, you, you know, they want to go deeper. You know, they hear the stories about the, the 130 pitch efforts that, that was, that was regular in the, in the eighties and nineties. So yeah, I, I, I'm sure they're tired of hearing that, you know, they, they, they definitely want to go deeper. Every pitcher wants to finish what they started if possible. But obviously when you have a deep bullpen and you see the success rate of some of these relievers, to me, that's the biggest difference from the eighties and nineties is the deeper bullpens. Now there's, how could you not use some of these weapons you have down in the bullpens? I mean, it, it used to be a big drop off from the starting rotation, to middle relief in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s and 90s when you had 10-man pitching staff. So your middle relievers were sinker ball guys, lower-velocity guys that came in to try to get ground balls, get double plays. And now you've got guys throwing 100 miles an hour that are in middle relief. You know, let's bring this guy in through 98. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole different talent this, this, this skill set in terms of middle relief, not closers, just just the – the guys that uh, fill out the middle of your bullpen. So that, that, you know, the weapons and the talent level is so much higher than it used to be. So that's, that's one factor. I think that people don't realize, is why don't these guys go farther? Why don't these starters pitch deeper? Well, we, we got this guy out here. That's pretty good that we could bring in right now in the fifth or yeah. sixth inning that they can uh, maybe get us out of this jam. So that's part of it. Certainly, I guess, you know, it, you know, Matt, I guess, you know, I the quote one last question I had for you just on a personal note for you. And, mm-hmm. um, How's it been in the grind? You know, you mentioned that 200-day train ride. You're in it now. You've got a good taste of it. How's it feel? How do you like this lifestyle? And secondly, can you, can you give us anything humorous on the side? Maybe an interchange? You know, exchange. I know the humor. I miss that the most. The humor of a clubhouse, either from the coaches or the silly sophomoric humor sometimes you get in, in major league clubhouses. Any exchanges you've had, you know, with any, whether it's Cole or anybody or, you know, an anonymous pitcher, you don't have to give us a name, but you, you thought was really humorous and then along with your your impressions of being in the grind yeah I think uh
3: my impressions of being in the grind you know it's if if you're doing something that you're really passionate about it's it's not as problematic as it seems on the surface obviously there's a lot of compromise you have in this lifestyle where you know as soon as you set foot in spring training your schedule's dictated until hopefully late October um and you know typically it's there's not a lot of weddings and birthdays and you know graduations you're attending you know on this schedule and you're trying to find you know a saturday day game to find a dinner that night with your wife and friends and i think but the trade-off is you're doing something that's really rewarding and it's with a group of people and you're all striving for the same thing and i think that the, the nightly ebbs and flows with that group is really rewarding um and i think that's the part that for me that i've really enjoyed obviously you know, the travel, you know, with the Yankees is is extensive and it's it's well done. You know, it's first class. So that's one thing that you probably on the surface thing is worse than it is. You know, but when you get in it, it's you know you're staying staying in nice hotels, you're traveling on charter planes, you're getting good food. So it's hard to complain about that if you're being real about it. <laughs> so I think it's just the, the nature of anything that you do every single day, and you're at the field from you know noon till eleven, you know, and then it's back at it the next day and I think we're fortunate that we're playing well and it feels better to go to the field than when you're not playing well and you go through long stretches like that. So um, for me, it's been, it's been great. Um, as far as, you know, interactions with the guys, you know, I think there's always, you know, different moments with guys, you know, last year, we've got the, uh, the one in Fenway where we're going out, uh, you know, with Chappie on the mound and it's at the time when, you know, a lot of people have been stealing signs from second and, um <laughs> we're going I go we want we want to get the guy off second. So it's in like late in the game in September. And we're trying to beat the Red Sox to stay in it. And they want me to go out and tell Chappie to to balk, you know, intentionally balk to move him over. And so I go out there with our translator and Rizzo comes in, Rugi comes in, they're all there, and it's a it's a pretty tight spot in the game. And um, I'm like, Chappie, we need you to balk this guy over to third. We don't want him taking your signs and He's kind of shaking his head. I'm like Marlon, you know, translating. Rizzo jumps in. He goes, "Chappie, Marlon, ask Chappie if he's scared right now." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no!" I'm like, "We need Chappie to understand what the block is that we're looking for." And he's like, "No, ask him if he's scared." And then Chappie's all, you know, like, "No, I'm not scared." You know, get out of here, Rizzo. And I'm like, "All right, we get out of here and we get back to the dugout." And Booney's like, "Is he got it?" And I'm like, "We'll find out." Comes up, throws the pitch, and it's like clearly he doesn't have it. And Cora's in the other dugout just laughing at us, like you know, and he, you know, throws the ball to the backstop and he gets third and like, well, he solved it one
1: way.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. I remember
1: that sequence. I remember that pitch back to the backstop too.
0: Yeah. So. All right, a couple quick ones here for you. Which pitcher is the most low maintenance on the staff?
3: I'd say uh, Clay Holmes is pretty low maintenance. That's been a, a pretty nice one to have on the staff in terms of very detailed in his work. Um, very on top of his his performance, what he needs to do to be ready to pitch. Um, you know, Jameson Tyone's very, very low maintenance. I mean, we, we're lucky that we have a lot of professional guys that, like, you don't have to hold their hand in their work, and they're very detailed, and they're getting the feedback they need to work on the right things to be ready to pitch. But, I mean, those two guys in particular stand out um, just from, you know, emotionally very consistent. Uh, their deliveries are very stable you know, high strike thrower, so a lot of times it's it's pretty low key with them.
0: All right, I know it doesn't work this way, but if if Matt Blake had a call out sick one day, which pitcher on the active roster could step in for you seamlessly? <laughs>
3: I mean, I uh Garrett would definitely take the cake on that one. I mean, the other night when I got kicked out, he I, before I could get down from my perch next to Booney, he was already reaching for the clipboard like he had it. So I think we were in good hands as soon as I got tossed that Garrett was going to hold the fort down for us.
0: Do you see him interacting with all the pitchers on staff or is it just the starters? Yeah, I think uh, it's one of the, the strengths of our staff
3: is that it's pretty interchangeable in terms of the guys connecting. Obviously, the starters kind of have their their bond, that they're, they're working game plans, they're watching the game together. Um, but definitely, they all pick each other's brain. And I think that's, for me, the, the strength of our group is how collectively aligned they are in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, how we're getting there, the ways we work on it, the feedback they get, the feedback they give each other. And I think for me that coming out of 2020, that's one thing I don't think we did particularly well because of some of the restrictions of COVID meetings, you know, we had to be more one-on-one and, you know, smaller groups. And I think that was to get the group back together in 2021 and build to 2022, we had to bring more of like a shared awareness about who we're facing, what's happening, what we're working on. And I think that's really where our strength is right now. All
0: right. And I know he's always been a star at the plate, but from a pitcher's perspective, why is it a nightmare facing Aaron Judge this season compared to seasons past?
3: I feel like he's really continued to look at himself at what he clearly does well as a strength and identify some things in his swing that, maybe have been limitations or weaknesses before in terms of plate coverage or pitches he was swinging at. And I feel like his swing isn't as good of a spot as it's ever been in terms of his ability to cover in, you know, in terms of the sinkers that he gets in on his hand, the sliders away, the fastballs up like his, his, size gives him a longer reach than most, but with that comes, you know, a long swing typically. And I feel like he's done a really nice job of continuing to refine his mechanics of the swing and tighten it up so that he has tighter coverage of the pitch in and coverage of the slider way. And I just think the evolution of him as a hitter is he's, he's really refined his approach and he understands what guys are trying to do to him and he's really prepared getting in there. And I mean, it's just continuing to build uh, and it's, it's really impressive to watch.
0: All right, guys. And this is this is a good indication on how long we've been trying to get Matt on the pod here. Matt, you and we haven't had too many guests on during the season, but we built up a nice rhythm here in the offseason. We like to end our chats with with guests, giving them a chance to ask something to an upcoming guest of the podcast. So we're going to tell you the name of a guest that's coming on the show in the near future. And you're going to have to quickly here come up with a question to ask them and we're going to relay that to them when they appear on the podcast. But we have a question for you from a past guest. And this okay. is right before the season began brave starter. Max Fried had a question for you. Here it is.
2: I guess I've always kind of been curious as what
3: it's, what it's like to play in the, in the New York market. What's is it, is it any different than kind of like, obviously it's different. It's, it's very in, more, you know, intense, and uh and you have a really passionate fan base that's really engaged. So, is there a more,
1: you know, it, it's a great line of questioning you're going down there because you know, yeah. as a coach, I'm sure that has to be one of the variables, right? Can it can can this guy handle this atmosphere, right? The yeah. potential to get booed, the Bronx cheer, you know, the the emotional part of it. I think it's a big part of any major league pitcher now i think it's probably changed a lot since i played you know i was a greg mm-hmm. maddox tom glavin era uh so yeah i mean we didn't have sports psychiatrists back then but i i, I would be curious yeah. about that is how does that factor into the decision making you know in terms of uh you know uh, how you evaluate how you evaluate your pitchers you know and can they handle can they handle that heat
3: exactly it's a good question i think you know obviously having been in the
1: cleveland market and then coming over here there's always just
3: there's it's louder, not in the stadium, the stadium's obviously louder, but I just feel like there's more eyeballs on you and there's more. And obviously New York's uh, because of the history has a really high set of expectations for the team. So there's definitely this, you know, outsized reward for, if you're playing well, you have this huge tidal wave of energy and excitement behind you. That is really hard for the opposing team to come into Yankee stadium and deal with in their own right. But I also think there's the the other side of it that guys can struggle with is when things aren't going well, that same level of, uh, you know, the, the loudness can also permeate in a, in a negative way for guys, whether it's the booing at the field or, you know, the social media, they're just getting crushed. And I think the expectations are, are really high. And I think it's one thing that we have to as a group stay really tight uh, in the clubhouse and dealing with these things. And I think you know, at times some guys have handled it better than others. And I think it's, it's constantly learning. And, I, you know, I felt like last year, you know, we played so poorly at times and that, you know, it was really wearing on guys because just it, the fans were getting on us and it's part of it, you know, it's, no, there's no excuses for it, but I do think it is a challenge to, to manage both the the, the How hard the game is at the major league level and the expectations of a, a fan base that's, you know, really hungry for another title and just how many, you know, voices and eyeballs there are around the area, not to mention the, the outsized media presence that, you know, can really foster, you know, both positive and negative emotions based on what's going on. Um, so I just think things are amplified in the New York market. So it's, it's really no different than anywhere else. There's just a larger echo chamber that you have to be able to manage. And I think it's, it's really important as a group to take inventory of that stuff and make sure that we're, we're all in a good spot because some guys are going through it and it's really hard for them to deal with. And I think it's just something that as a group, we've taken uh, measures to talk about more because it is real, you know, it's don't just, ignore it and assume that everybody's good and everybody's okay it's like we need to take, take inventory and check in with each other to make sure that they are managing it well both positively and negatively
2: well it could be harder to try and stay on an even keel when things aren't going well right because you know psychologically negative things can feel worse than positive things feel good so it might be easier to, to stay neutral when things are going well right
1: yeah and i think
3: it's it's you know, human nature that there could be a 100 positive comments out there. And then there's the two negative ones that are completely, you know, off base, but those are the ones that resonate with you just because they, they hurt and then they stick with you. So I think it's really hard for guys to, to process that and filter that out. And I think that's one thing that, you know, we talked to, you know, and personally, whether it's Booney or myself, or coaching staff is, just learning where where the information is coming from that you want to get feedback from and what's the important you know who, what are you filtering out is it is it the media is it the fans you know is it your friends you know just learning how to filter in information that is good critical feedback and just you know dismiss the stuff that does not have substance to it and i think that's it's a challenge but it's a it's a skill that you need to develop to to really
0: succeed in this game I think that psychology and philosophy majors are carrying double weight here in New York for (laughs) Matt. No doubt. All right. We have a, we have someone that you can ask a question to, and this is going to be pretty interesting because it's one of the Yankees main competitors in the AL East. So Matt, what would you ask Ray's starting pitcher, Shane McClanahan?
3: I'd say, you know, he's obviously a really talented pitcher and I don't know what he's willing to give up to us, but. i'd be interested to hear about um his evolution from college pitcher at south florida and the things that he's valued as he's gotten through the minor leagues into the major leagues to refine his repertoire refine his delivery because he's obviously um, a hard-throwing left-handed pitcher who there were some questions about starter reliever coming out of the draft and whether he could do it i think he's taken to that and really refined his delivery so i'd be interested what are some of the things that he's really valued in this process to become a high-end major league starter?
0: Perfect. Yeah, Shane should be joining us uh, in the coming weeks, so we're excited to see uh, and have him on and hear, hear what he has to say. We will absolutely relay that to him. Uh, Matt, this has been terrific. We're going to have to have you on again as well, but so far, hey, congratulations. First third of the way, his yeah. pitching staff looks dynamite here in 2022. Thanks again, and and congrats on the success so far.
3: I uh, appreciate it. Thanks
0: guys.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. Great job. Best, best of luck the rest of the way. Yeah. Thanks, Tony.
0: David, would you think about Matt's remarks about uh, the cutter usage? Because we've talked about this in prior episodes this season, how there's you know been the, the certain trends that we've seen certain pitches, the, the increased usage, obviously, the cutter is the pitch of the year so far in, in 2022, not too many pitchers used to throw it. Now, a lot of people are throwing it. What'd you have to, or what, what do you think about what Matt had to say about the cutter?
1: Yeah. Every time I talk to Matt Blake, I'm more impressed, you know, just the way he handles himself. It's always about we and collaborative efforts. It's never about me, me, I, I, my philosophy. You never almost, you never hear him say that. So, uh, you know, just an impressive, impressive young man, young pitching coach, um, you know for me uh, the the interesting part was is that they are really looking for easier outs kind of that back you know back to the future kind of a philosophy that's what we were taught back in the 80s was hey make it easy on yourself the first time a couple times through the order maybe you can get some easy outs save your third pitch for the third time through the order so you can get deeper into the games the whole philosophy behind starting pitching is kind of there's a rebirth to that kind of a, a thing of don't go for swinging misses all the time. Have the catcher set up down the middle like Gary Carter did for Dwight Gooden back in 1985. Maybe the best single season effort of any starting pitcher in modern history was Dwight Gooden's year in 1985. And Gary Carter set up right down the middle. Throw it to me right here. And then when you get two strikes, maybe I'll move to the corners for you. But let's dominate the strike zone. Uh, let's get some soft contact, which is what the cutter does early in counts. Let's see if we can get some weak ground balls, get some easy outs three or four pitch outs, and then you can get deeper in the games that way. And you can save some of your weapons for that third time through the order. So the whole quality control of how do we get deeper into games? How do we get our numbers better the third time through the order? Maybe even a fourth time through the order. God forbid we may starting pitchers facing a hitter four times. Yeah. Let's crawl before walking. Good, Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that they are figuring that out and it's paying off for the Yankee starting rotation. As we see, one after the other, get deeper and deeper into the games. It's almost like uh, unless you go seven innings, you know, hey, you, you fell a little bit short in this pass-the-baton uh, action we have going on with the Yankees' rotation.
2: Luis Severino joked after uh, after some of these great starts, he said, if I didn't go seven, I was afraid I was going to get traded. <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you think you could
0: couple the the pace of pitching? You know, he talked about pitch calm. Do you think you can couple that with – the quality control element you know make sure that you have a few honey holes spread out over the course of your outing do they kind of go hand in hand because of the way pitchers have have talked about pitch com it's mostly been positive do you think pace of play their rhythm and then saving those weapons do you think they can kind of all be rolled into one big ball
1: i think that's exactly what they're trying to do and the yankees are doing it as well as anybody in the big leagues right now um you know, it's know, it's an, it's an organizational philosophy. It's a system-wide philosophy, certainly led by the major league level, uh, talent level. Uh, it's easier said than done. Hey, just uh, own the strike zone. Fill up the strike zone. And then you start giving up line drives and home runs, and then you, you get chased out of the strike zone. That that happens quickly. You know, it's the Mike Tyson theory of pitching. You know, everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the mouth. For a pitcher, you know, giving up a three-run home run in the first inning is getting punched in the mouth, and it will make you doubt everything you're doing out there in a hurry. So, Success helps. Uh, Osmosis helps too. I I say that, you know, and I've been on great pitching staffs and it really does ring true and it's hard to put a number hard to quantify, but you see a lot of good pitching. It's like, Oh, the light bulb goes on, but it's Luis Severino throws seven shutout innings. I'm due to pitch the next game. Wow. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a confidence builder. It takes some pressure off of you. It's much easier to be the continuer. As we said, the old school, Theory was I'm the continuer you started it. I'm going to continue instead of being the stopper. Oh no. I had four lousy starts ahead of me. Now it's my turn to pitch a little more pressure on you. Then I've got to stop this losing streak. I just saw everybody getting their brains beat in, giving up line drives and home runs in the three games previously that I just watched, uh, you know, from the dugout as a starting pitcher, you know, that's a little higher degree of difficulty psychologically wise. And, you know, I keep getting back to that, but yeah, I, I'm very fascinated with how Matt Blake expresses himself. And the psychology part of his background, pretty interesting. You know, it really is needed from a big league pitching coach to have that, that skill set. You know, philosophy and psychology go hand in hand. It's something that major league pitchers respond to. And that, that really is kind of his secret sauce in there is not only tech, tech, you know, the technology part, he understands all the new technology very well. But, you know, that that's human element side that, that he brings to the table. Really, to me, I find fascinating.
0: A lot of people back in the fall of 2019, when the Yankees hired him, they kind of questioned it, saying, man, this is such an outside the box hire. How's this going to go? Matt Blake has been a terrific fit so far with the New York Yankees. Uh, James, this week in pitching history, what do you have for us?
2: All right. June 8th, 1986, 36 years ago, Wednesday, Twins at Royals. David Cohn makes his major league debut for the Royals coming on in relief of Brett Saberhagen to start the ninth inning of a game that the Royals were down four to one, one run, one inning, got the first batter. He faced Gary Gaetti to ground out to third and three straight singles, Steve Lombardozzi, Jeff Reed, Greg Gagne. But then you got Kirby Puckett on a fielder's choice and Randy Bush on a ground out. Welcome to the show, Coney. Seeing so much baseball in my life and, and, shaq we both worked around the minor leagues in years past seeing how long and arduous the road is to get to the big leagues i still can't get enough of major league debuts you know whether it's a pitcher you know that first pitch or the first strikeout and they save the ball a batter getting that first hit i I can't get enough of it and i love it so coney happy anniversary congratulations on your major league debut this week in pitching history
1: wow Blast from the past. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was my hometown in Kansas City at Royal Stadium, the place I grew up going to. So you add that into it and trying to look up in the stands and find my parents and couldn't find them. I didn't know where the family section was. I'm trying to look, you know, because I know it meant a lot to them. So, yeah, when I ran in from the bullpen, I felt like I was running underwater. I mean, it's hard to describe that feeling you have. You're overwhelmed with emotion. You think pitching in the big leagues is easy, but for rookies, it's not. You really do have to overcome just the physical and the emotional part in order to, to, to get to uh, just pitching, just, just getting back to what you know you can do and executing pitches. you you got you to peel through all those layers of emotion, and that, that, that's a day I'll never forget. What
0: was it like getting that very first out?
1: You know, the, the whole day was a blur. Okay. It really was, because, you know, especially facing Kirby Puckett. I remember facing Kirby Puckett, and he hit a rocket on the ground right at him. So you know, I learned about batting average on balls in play right away in you know, my first first appearance. was like, wow! I Thank God that went right at somebody because that was an absolute rocket that Kirby Bucket hit. So, yeah, I, I, it's it's a blur. That's the thing. I wish I could give you specifics, but I hear the story from a lot of pitchers in their debut is like, I, I don't really remember. I it was it's, I'm just trying to survive, you know. I'm just I was overcome with emotion. So yeah, it really is kind of a blur. It's like you're you're living a dream, and it's almost like you're outside of your body.
0: And this leads us into three up three down. James, I know there's a picture that's on your radar this week that also had a debut to remember way back well, almost 10 years now, or could be even more than that off the top of my head. Who do you have here as we as we begin three up three down.
2: So three up three down. Welcome back Steven Strasburg he is returning to the Nationals on Thursday in Miami coming back from thoracic outlet syndrome. Wednesday is the 12 year anniversary of his debut in 2010. The 14 strikeouts, one of the most heralded pitching prospects ever. He's lived up to the hype. A 3-2-1 career ERA, good for a 128 ERA plus. Over 30 career wins above replacement. Top eight in the major leagues in ERA, opponent batting average, and strikeout rate since he debuted. The great 2019 postseason run when he had a 198 ERA and helped carry the Nats to their first World Series title. And he won World Series MVP. A great career for a great pitcher. And it's great to have him back.
0: Yeah, he, he's making his return for the first time, I think, since early 2021. And, I mean, he's making $35 million annually at this point. Um, no Full no trade clause with that contract as well. I remember at the time, it was the largest ever contract for a pitcher, both uh, average annual value, total value, pretty sure there are deferrals. With it being Washington, that's a common theme for them as well. And coming back from thoracic outlet surgery, that, you know, uh, the odds are are stacked against, I guess, the Nationals, so to speak, with, with the situation they're in with the contract. But, man, you just root for him to pitch well because when he is on his game, he is electric, and he's really fun to watch. And I'm never for, going to forget his big league debut where he struck out 12, 13, 14 Pirates uh, after being drafted number one overall. So. Uh, it's I think for a Nationals fan base, it's it's good to have Strasburg back on the hill, something for them to to look forward to, for sure. Um, guy that I have, or I have two guys, and, and David, I know you've talked about Hunter Green a lot since the season started, and it's kind of been fun to watch him get acclimated to, to the big leagues. There are some starts where he struggles, and then there's some where he just lights up his opponent. And recently, it was back on, on Monday against the Diamondbacks, We had him where Hunter Green was dominant. He tossed seven scoreless, struck out eight. He only allowed one hit. And the very next day, Graham Ashcraft came on and tossed six scoreless innings against the Diamondbacks. So you have Green and Ashcraft. Those are two rookies. And there was a pretty cool nugget from Stats, LLC. The Reds are the first team in the modern era to have a rookie starter throw six or more scoreless innings with no walks. In back-to-back games, so it makes you, you know, think a little bit, and pretty impressive that it hasn't been done. Kind of hard to believe that it hasn't been done, but all the same, you have Hunter Green, Graham Ashcraft, two rookies lighting it up back-to-back games, and the Reds, who began the year at three and twenty-two, are sixteen and thirteen since that slow start. So, you know, don't don't have a a tough beginning for the reds be that burning image that you have of Cincinnati here in 2022, because they've improved and they have some good young arms that hopefully can kind of carry them through and out of this, uh, mud that they have, uh, have, you know, that that they're currently in to try and overcome that poor start 16 and 13 since a three in 2022 start.
1: Great, great points all the way through Shaq. And, you know, it is fun to watch these guys kind of, uh, there's a light bulb effect. You can see it from start to start. Hunter Green's starting to figure things out. I mean, his stuff is electric, 100 miles an hour on the top end, a wicked slider. He's learning how to sequence his pitches better. His confidence is growing. It's really fun to see a young pitcher evolve like that. And start to start, you can almost see the look on his face, his body language, the look in his eyes. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a follow. This, this kid is legit, for real. It, it's nice to see organizations let these kids learn on the big league level. Get them up here. Let them learn. Let them take a few lumps and stick with them. And that those are the lessons that, that stick with you that, that are that, that really uh, resonate as opposed to learning that lesson in AAA, You still have that doubt in the back of your mind is whether you if you pitch a good game in AAA, does that translate to the big leagues? You don't know for sure until you get up to the big league. So, I you know, I think it's really important to, to get these lumps and to learn these lessons on the big league level. All
0: right, David, what do you have for us? Three up, three down.
1: You know, I think it's a good time to sort of revisit uh, the new playoff structure this year as part of the collective bargaining agreement and the lockout. It seems like it was so long ago right now. I mean, (laughs) we were having lockout specials on this podcast uh, a couple of months ago, it seems like. So, you know, the Yankees in great spot, uh, you know, uh, leading the the American League East. The American League East is a beast, just like we said before. You know, and maybe it's a good time to throw to James to kind of give us a refresher course on you know what's going on with the, with the expanded playoffs this year? Twelve teams in both leagues now, so it's six and six. What the format is? If it if the season ended today, all four American League East teams are sitting in a playoff spot right now. It's pretty remarkable, you know, uh, when you, when you think
2: about it. So I'll I'll throw to James to kind of give us a refresher course. Okay, so it's uh, six teams in each league, not five. So there's an extra ticket being punched. The top two seeds get buys into the division series, the, the traditional LDS that we all know and love. Uh, the wild card round is going to be the three seed against the six seed, the lowest division, uh, the lowest division winner facing the last wild card team. Three versus six, and four versus five, as far as the seeds, those are going to be best of three series, all at the site of the higher seeded team. So you you would potentially get three home games to win two and advance. So looking at the, at the standings here, you have the, the Yankees and Astros top two in the American League, uh, twins leading the Central, the three wildcard teams, as Coney said, Toronto, Tampa Bay, Boston. So you have your four, five, six, four teams in the American League East holding playoff spots right now. That's pretty wild. And you wonder how, how that's going to go as the season drags on, if the more they play each other with an unbalanced schedule, do they eat into that? And can someone else get back in on the race? You look at the national league, uh, you have the Mets, number one, the Dodgers, number two, they get the two buys the top uh, team in the central, the brewers would be the three and your three wildcard teams right now in the central, the Padres Cardinals and giants. And you look at how long the season is Atlanta got off to a slow start they've gone on a nice streak here and they're only one game behind the the Giants for that last wild card spot and then you have the Phillies as as disastrous as their start has been and Joe Girardi's out now they're only three and a half behind of playoff spots so it's a long season we're only one third of the way through just about
1: great points the Angels too right even though they're in the midst of a a huge almost two week long losing streak they're only two and a half out only two and a half out yeah right even with all that being said yes. yeah
0: between that, the Red Sox poor start, who, like you, like you said, James, if the playoffs started today, they'd be in. Uh, the objects in the mirror are closer than they appear, right? They, yes. You can't count them out. Only a third of the way through. So there's plenty left to play for. And a lot of the teams that have been disappointing so far, they are right there. Uh, that's what makes it fun, man. Uh, Going to be interesting to see uh, how, how this looks. And we'll probably revisit it, say, I don't know, at the All-Star break or so. Good point. Good point. Good. Timeless. To- well, we're a
1: little past the third way, you know, a third yeah. of the way through. So yeah, I mean, just just kind of a refresher on what they're looking at. You know, a couple of managers got fired. <clears throat> Those teams are looking to catch lightning in a bottle. The Phillies have kind of turned it around. I don't know if that's directly related to Joe Girardi or not. You know, that that's the ultimate question. Obviously, Joe Madden with the Angels as well. But that's what these organizations are looking at now with the expanded playoffs. Hey, we got to turn this thing around. It's kind of a copycat sport, right? Philly fires Girardi and has a little bit of success over three or four games, and now the Angels. Are, well, that's what we want. We want we want to turn it around the in the short term the way Philly did too, as well. So it is remarkable to see, you know, kind of the follow the leader aspect of Major League Baseball sometimes.
0: If you want to be really extreme and look even further down, I mean, the Marlins, a team like the Marlins, only five and a half games out, the Mariners, who a lot of people pick to be a trendy postseason team. Only four games out. So moral of the story is if you're a fan of a certain team, that's not in the playoff picture. There's still plenty of reasons why you should be watching your team right now, because there is plenty left to play for here in 2022. All right, guys, that's going to do it here for this episode. Big thank you to Yankees pitching coach, Matt Blake, for joining us here and to the incredible Dan Rourke who got this episode turned around very quickly today. Nice work, Dan. Uh, new episodes of the show drop each and every week, Tuesdays usually, sometimes on Wednesdays like today. Again, please rate, review, subscribe. Best way you get, you can show some support for the show. Tell me the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.